politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So I don't know if you guys have been reading the headlines, but apparently there's a ransomware gang that compromised the L.A. school district, which is one of the biggest in the country. How big is it? It's 600,000 students. The main thing here is that the school district said under the instruction of the federal government to not be willing to pay any ransom. And uh, so the school district said that they were not going to pay ransom. And so accordingly, the Vice Society, who are the guys behind this hack, have just done this massive information dump of 500 gigabytes of data exfiltrated from the school system. How much data is that? It sounds like a lot of data. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite a bit. It has, among other things, uh, social security numbers, um, some medical information on students, which is really troubling. Uh, things about contractors and employees of the school district and so on. So it's uh, it, it, it's a pretty major hack. Aren't there some psychological assessments of students too? Yeah, that's right. And so that's all now just kind of floating around on the dark web. That's really disturbing. I mean, I, I first of all, am very upset about anybody that thinks they should be attacking a school district and releasing children's information. I mean, that's that's pretty low. But then again, there are guys that attack medical facilities all the time and put people's lives in danger. So I guess there's no low when it comes to low. What's our best advice for the parents out there who are facing this situation? Mine, I guess, would be to set the kids up with uh, credit monitoring. What about you? Credit freezes too. Definitely freeze their credit. Dark web monitoring, I'd say, is one of the big ones. That just each time that data ends up in a new place, each time that data ends up in a new archive, you're going to want to know about it. So, you know, parents who want to protect their kids who might not be in this particular uh, district, but are somewhere else in the country, there are some things they can do. Adam, you brought up credit freezes. I think, you know, having credit checks, deep, deep web monitoring. Kids don't have bank accounts, but they do have social media accounts, and those can be protected by a variety of means, including, as you like to point out, two-factor authentication. Well, anything that can be done to better protect a child's social media account is great. Actually, some of us believe anything that can be done to convince your child not to have a social media account would be a good idea, too. But that's never going to work. No. And then, you know, even I remember when my kids were my kids were grown when they were little um, long before they were 13 and it was allowed. They had secret accounts. Um, And, you know, so my children were uh, 20. I mean, if you go by when they signed up for social media, they're both in their 30s right now. (laughs) But I I do think this goes back to the whole issue of bringing cyber hygiene into the household as early as possible and convincing your kids that they're not only protecting themselves, but they could be protecting the entire family and ultimately daddy or mommy's business by being as cyber hygienic as possible. All right. Let me ask you guys this question. Adam, do you have a burner password that you use on things where it doesn't matter, like parking meters and, you know, parking apps and stuff like that? Yes. Okay. Does your kid know that burner password? No. Travis, does your kid know your burner password or do you know no such thing in Travis land? There's no such thing in Travis land. I uh, <laughs> had one maybe like 15 years ago and have really just kind of uh, worked to get rid of any account that still has the old uh, burner password on it. I have one. I have two. I might even have three, but I have one for sure. That is my going to the movies and checking out password. And also, if you want to watch Netflix on my dime, it's my Netflix, my password for Netflix. And um, my kids know it. 
my kids do know it. And that is something that I think is true for a lot of parents, even though you two are cyber savvy. Change your password. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so much easier. Kids are awesome, but unfortunately, kids can become weapons of mass destruction within a family when it comes to cyber. But uh, that's why it's important to monitor your kids also, to know what's what they're doing. Yeah, that became a lot more uh, urgent for me when my son, when he was still a toddler, figured out how to get around the parent controls on his Kindle and ordered himself a book. What book did he order? Thankfully, it was just Green Eggs and Ham, which is pretty anodyne. I mean, that's a lot of people's first book. So, uh, yeah, nothing, nothing too dangerous. Not the uh, Anarchist Cookbook or anything like that. Yeah, because, you know, if he gets the Anarchist cookbook and he gets lucky with that yeah you definitely would be having some issues even in portland where they seem to smile upon such behavior yeah not so much. <laughs> welcome to what the hack a show about hackers scammers and the people that go after i'm adam cyber who <laughs> well i'm Bo. cyber what <laughs> i'm travis cyber grinch and today we're talking with lockpicker physical penetration specialist and security expert, Deviant Olaf. excited today to have Deviant Olaf with us on our show. Well, thank you for having me. It's really great to be here. So are you allowed to tell us where you're from? <laughs> oh, these days I'm from the internet, right? Which means I swear too much, get frustrated at little things, but try to tackle big things with aplomb and grace. Originally, I guess the answer is I'm from back east. Uh, back from Philadelphia. Oh. Yeah, I'm from Philadelphia. Now, are you from the uh, Rocky Balboa part of Philadelphia? Was that Fishtown? The, yeah, I mean, he was. Part? I'm not from Fishtown. No, I've lived in. I went from West Philadelphia to Western Montana to sort of West Seattle, uh, just bouncing along. It's, there used to be a Forrest Gump joke in there, like I'd hit the water and turn around. But honestly, uh, no, the West Coast, the, the, between Montana and the Pacific Northwest. Some of the best places I've ever lived. Yep. 100%. Now, I got to ask you, if you've been in Western Montana, yeah. have you spent any time at the Chapel of the Dove? I haven't. In Missoula. I'm, Do you know about I it? I lived in Missoula. Now, it must be gone then. When I was in that area, there was a movie theater called the Chapel of the Dove, mm -hmm. and the man who ran it actually had a pigeon on his head. <laughs> when you bought a ticket from him. And that's where I saw Raising Arizona, but this was a long time ago, Amazing. so it may have... <laughs> no, I didn't know it. I didn't spend as much time there as I might've liked. I uh, I was only living in Montana for a little over a year. I was getting increasingly oh. strident and angry letters from the DMV informing me that I still hadn't purchased a Subaru Outback uh, and they would have to revoke my <laughs> permit to live in the state. <laughs> so yeah, didn't get on it. Yeah, and they they booted me I out. Wish I, had known, I wish I had known you. Now, now Adam called you Deviant Olaf, and that is not how I would pronounce your name yeah. uh, in writing. So, you know, and actually Northwest, there is a text called the, the Wallam Olam, which is an origin story of the natives in that area. That's not what it refers to, I'm guessing. No. What, where, how do you get an F out of an M? So it's Celtic. Uh, it's a Celtic surname. And Olaf sometimes rendered uh, a little bit differently, diff depending on where you are in different counties over in Ireland. But there were, my understanding is there were different sort of levels of learning and scholarship. And this is in pre-written tradition, right? You're, you basically had oral histories and oral learning and, and knowledge was passed by telling stories and epic poems. So Olaf's were a rank of scholar that had not attained the topmost rank. They had learned most of what they could from the place of their origin and essentially spent a time on tour, just going around to different shires and counties and singing for their supper, as it were, educating those who wanted education, being paid for that and learning from the people there, learning the news, learning the histories and the epics from that region and carrying that with them. So I liked the idea very much of, of being a peripatetic, you know, penetrator and peripatetic professor and a wandering, a wandering person who likes to teach but recognizes there's more to learn. Like us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. We are. Exactly, Adam. <laughs> we view we view ourselves as wandering minstrels. We just wander the cybersphere. So, Adam, your name now from here on out, you will be known as Adif. 
<laughs> We're going to change the... Out of... Yeah, you followed the go west young man theory. I have crisscrossed a number of times. And right now, the joke is, you know, my cats and books live someplace static, but I live in seat 2A, generally on some aircraft. And and that is because you do penetration testing, physical penetration testing all around the country. And um, I see, you know, behind you for our listeners that you can't see that behind Olaf is a, there's a rack of keys and it looks like um, the, uh, an entry, a point of entry uh, keypad uh, for a, for a, for a gate or something like that. There's, there's various, there's a phone, there's a pay phone. Yes. Oh, wow. That's a, fe- that's a federal there's offense a, right there. There's a pay phone. There's this phone over here. <laughs> so, so what is it that you do? Like what is that? Are you on a plane all the time? Cause you're traveling around to go and break into joints. Many times. Yeah. Uh, we wear a lot of hats at our various companies. I do education as much as I do consultation. But when I'm not in a classroom teaching people about locks and security, I am invariably on site, uh, usually breaking some locks and security. So uh, we do that in the form both of what would be, you know, the, the sort of corporate speak would be adversarial emulation or in the hacker world, you know, let's be bad guys. Let's break in. Let's be a professional thief with no consequences. Or I get invited to a lot of army bases where somebody has either lost a combination or forgotten a combination to a safe or a vault. And again, with the sanitized suit and tie language, I I neutralize various uh, government classified document containers. What that means is, you know, I I drill in, I I slice, drill, torch, whatever it takes to get in and uh, get the container open. So in other words, if someone were to lose the nuclear football, would you be the guy that would uh, say, wait, I, I have the code here for you? I'm glad to say I would not be that guy, and I'm happy to not have the responsibility of anyone that serious. Uh, most of my jobs are a little more low stakes. We do we do government work from time to time, but a lot of our work is uh, is private sector. So we but you are, have like you have plasma torches, and you have do you have like the good stuff? Do you have like what do you got? You got some good tools. I do have a lot of now torches. So thermic you know thermal cutting is you need to get a burn permit and a lot of other things to do that to. Uh, to a container. So in an office environment, instead of dragging something out to the loading dock or spreading down the blankets, it's nice if you can just do cutting. Uh, cutting's pretty okay. loud, but it's contained. How did you get started with this? The the trite answer that's cutesy and good for the press and a soundbite is some of the right friends, some of the wrong friends. But buried within that is truth. Um, I was fortunate enough to be born innately with a sense of both wonder and disrespect for rules. But also, I was fortunate enough to have just enough barriers and just enough uh, parents backing me up if I got in small trouble to not let me get into big trouble. I could have easily become um, a very boring person if I wasn't more adventurous, but I could also easily have become, uh, and I don't know, an incarcerated person or something if I didn't have sure. a few boundaries and a few uh, get out of jail free cards with parents willing to talk to teachers and say, no, 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 he's just trying something his way but if it didn't hurt anything give him more of that assignment don't take away the the computer the device the, the electronics lab is this like the communities where people either become the priest or the cop or or it's, in prison yeah it's it's i don't like to think we are all so determined down at our core but um we're all a product of our inputs right and i had just the right amount of inputs to make me not respect the rules but also not completely hamstrung by consequences of rule breaking. Now, this was in Philadelphia where you learned this? Yeah, back east, Philadelphia, the New Jersey area. That's when I was uh, growing up, mostly back east. But uh, it never really never really left me the spark of, well, wh- why do it that way? Why should we do it that way? Just because we've always done it that way. This spring, get out there, enjoy the weather, and recapture the magic of riding a bike with 
electric e-bike. With an amazing variety of models built for riders of all abilities, it's never been easier to fall in love with riding again. Plus, every electric e-bike ships free and only requires quick, toolless assembly. This is my first ever e-bike, and the experience has just been great. I was a little bit intimidated at first because I hadn't gone biking in a while, but the 500-watt motor that the electric e-bike comes with really gives you a nice little boost, especially if you're trying to go uphill or pick up some speed. Data shows that e-bike riders take their bike out more often. That means you get more exercise, more exploration, and wait for it, fresh air. And riding an e-bike isn't like, it's not cheating. It's just making it possible for you to be out there longer on each ride. And speaking of things going a little slower, you can finance electric e-bike for as little as $49 a month. Get into spring with electric e-bikes, the number one selling e-bikes in the nation. Get your adventure started at electricebikes.com and please mention that What the Hack with Adam Levin sent you in the post-checkout survey. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-B-I-K-S.com. Let's talk about weight loss. Most of us have been there, struggling with the ups and downs. You lose some weight, then it creeps back. But forget those endless cycles of juice cleanses, soup diets, and the latest fad workouts. There's a better way. The Rope Body Program pairs a weekly weight loss shot with a real lifestyle change so you can lose weight and actually keep it off. Need support? Rose got you covered every step of the way. And guess what? You can do it all from the comfort of your own home. No more doctor's appointments, no more waiting rooms. It's that simple. Ready to take charge of your weight? Head over to row.co slash Adam to sign up today. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in a year. That's with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.co slash Adam. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash A-D-A-M. You said it in an interesting place where you're a security expert dealing with both physical penetration and cyber. Most certainly, most certainly. Um, there, you really can't divorce the two. In fact, I would say you can't divorce the three. Uh, I, I'm a big fan, as are many others in this industry, of reminding people that security exists kind of on three surfaces that mate together in unique ways. There's sort of physical, mechanical, then you have digital, which can mean your network security or your ones and zeros or your electronic locks. And then you have the human surface. And all of those surfaces have different roles to play. and it's nice when they're all in layers. Uh, you think about, gosh, I'm, I'm going to say uh, Jesse Singer's book, There Are No Accidents. She talks about the Swiss cheese model of security and how if you have holes of Swiss cheese, like a single hole of Swiss cheese, a single slice of Swiss cheese, there might be a hole that something could pass through. But if you stack a couple slices up, well, then maybe they will occlude the holes. And you stack enough slices of Swiss cheese up, even though they have holes, you can eventually get to a point where no light is coming through. There's no direct through line vulnerability. And when physical security, digital security, human security, when they're all stacked on one another, none of them will be perfect, but ideally they're all covering each other's back. Uh, many times though, we substitute one for the other. We say, well, the, the digital side of that machine is not too good. Well, let's put a lock on the door. Or that, that lock is a little bit sketchy, but we'll, we'll have a guard come around every so often. Which of those three types of uh, cheese has the biggest holes, in your opinion? Ooh, that's so interesting. To th that It's never one uniform answer. Uh, very different environments. You might have an environment where the people are actually the strongest layer, which we don't, you know, we always love to, to say, oh, well, humans are the weakest link. And that, there's truth to that saying. It's, it comes from a place of, of validity. But there are some environments. In fact, I was on a job where... The human element, maybe we'll get into this story later. It's a it's an agribusiness job that we did. The human element was stronger than everything else at that facility, and it shut us down at almost every turn. I have, uh, I remember when I first uh, got my, my house, I asked uh, a locksmith to come out and put a lock on, and I said, you know, is this a good lock? And he said, it doesn't really matter. And I said, why doesn't it really matter? And he says, because locks are for honest people. If a thief wants to come in, they're going to get in. And he used the example of taking a a sawzall, mm -hmm. a reciprocating saw, and just cutting along the side of my door mm -hmm. and cutting an opening in the side of my house to get into the house. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is a, it is a flaw of 
not thinking so much as a flaw of communication and framing. A uh, friend of mine, the, so Bruce Schneier, has a really great line that he's used in the past about the word. Let's start with the word security. To be secure, right? To be secure can mean an actual objective standard, like I am behind a high concrete wall and there is an angry dog who obeys my commands and I'm stroking uh, the butt of a rifle that's latched to me with a large magazine. Like you can be objectively secure against certain threats, but you can also say, well, that person over here, they're secure. Maybe you're talking about the emotion, the sensation, the idea, the concept of I feel secure. And of course, many times those two things are intention. People want the feeling of security, even if they're not objectively secure. See, for example, an easy punching bag would be, you know, the nation's airports, a lot of security theater there. Or there are people who actually are very secure, people in, I would say, most modern cities. We live in a very safe time, violent crime is going down, but people don't always feel secure. And because of that, they make a lot of bad risk assessment and make a lot of bad purchases and decisions. If we extend this problem with framing, I will, I will put it to you. Instead of the word lock, let's go with the word fence, okay? You might say a fence. Well, a fence, fences are for honest people. Yes and no. A fence, even a three-foot-tall fence, a little white picket neighborhood fence, easily jumped over by anybody of moderate physical means, that fence is still doing a job. It is demarcating, it is communicating, it is indicating a property line. It is communicating, hey, this is the space out there that's public, but inside this curtilage, maybe this isn't your space. And it is incumbent upon the public to behave in a way that they think is best. Now, you'd like people to respect that fence. The fence also does a job in terms of if there's a stranger in the yard, they can't really just say, oops, you know? It's they didn't just they, maybe they were. I'm just cutting through to get to my car. Oh, OK. But, you know, you jumped over a fence, right? You didn't just step around a bush. Oh, I'm not supposed to be in here. No, you know, you're not supposed to be in here. So what that I would call is a symbolic fence at that point. But you could say, well, fences are just for, you know, honest people. But if you look around again, let's say our nation's airfields, let's say military bases, you know, a high value facility that's doing specialized research and they don't want people coming and going, they're going to have a fence, but it's definitely a different fence, right? It's going to be seven feet tall, maybe with a topper. It might be buried or trenched so you can't tunnel under it. Electrified. Yes. So the question is not, well, fences are just to, to make people stay honest. It's what fence are you using? And I would say the problem in our world is that many times we are putting the three foot white picket ornamental fence around the high value target. You're using a symbolic lock, as it were, on an actual high value asset. Symbolic locks exist in our world. How many people have been in an office where you're not allowed to touch the air conditioning, right? It's behind that little plastic thing (laughs) with a little derpy wafer lock on it. Any one of you, any one of you can jiggle that lock open, but you know you're not supposed to, you know that. But if we take that little derpy nothing lock and put it on a locked panel that controls I don't know, all the power in the building or the nuclear yeah, football. Exactly, nuclear football. Anything like that. <laughs> that is that is the fault of the design. That is a bad framing where you're using a symbolic lock to perform a security yeah. role. As part of your penetration testing career, have you broken into airports, for instance? Or defense, def- I don't know, yeah, national defense targets? Um, I will say we have worked in those sectors. That is the can you best. Tell us an, can you tell us an adjacent, an ag- an, a sector adjacent story that might be? Well, I can, I can always tell you, it's easier for me to tell you stories that weren't definitely exactly my customers. So I can tell you things that have happened in airports, okay. where since I wasn't being paid to do anything and I wasn't on the contract, I, I'm not encumbered by any NDAs, right? Uh, There are definitely airports and many people have been in airports where you've seen this, where you get in an elevator to go between different levels, go up to the sky lounge or the whatever and the baggage levels down here. Look on the panel, you'll probably see other floors that might be locked out. Some of them are really interesting. They say, you know, control tower or airport ops level or something like that. Some of these go between the sterile zone and the insecure zone, like the baggage piers down down at the tarmac. 
this elevator is objectively not supposed to go between these various, very different zones without authorization. But years ago now, I put out a talk with a fellow named Howard. Uh, he and I built this lecture. It's just called elevator hacking, right? There are a lot of ways to get an elevator to go somewhere that you're not expected to let it go. Because they have the derpy little lock. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There are different there are key switches. There are lockout cutout switches. There are different modes of operation. If you put an elevator into non-automatic mode, into maintenance modes, into emergency responder modes, uh, it will go to these other floors. And I have footage of elevators in airports with you can see the fire jewel is lit like that elevator is on fire service. And even though it has this multi-factor chip and pin and biometric morpho reader on the wall, it's still going to go between different zones without, quote, authorization. Well, yeah, you are going with authorization. You're, the authorization is high. I have this little $8 key on eBay and fire code says the elevator has to do this. And this is the part where we say to Bo, please put down your pen and stop taking notes on this, Bo. <laughs> oh, I already, I'm already, I, I, one of my favorite thoughts is like, how do you hack these things? Um, I'm gonna really just dread the answer, but um, are we talking about past elevators or uh, are these still security weaknesses that persist? I'm proud to say that uh, kudos to the institution involved, that airport did get word about this. And if you, the one I'm thinking of, if you return to that airport, which many of us go through this airport very frequently uh, throughout the hacker world, uh, they have different key switches in the elevators that I have seen. So improvements, improvements are incremental and marginal, but you, you take the wins where you can. But that is a good example of old technology in spaces where there's new technology that's sensitive. And I imagine a lot of what you do is finding the the point the the weakest point of protection for entry. Oh sure, I mean a lot of our work is for higher tech companies, data centers, and the like, ISPs. Uh, there's a, there's sort of a convergence there of you need security awareness. You need to be mindful about security, which plenty of organizations just aren't, and you need discretionary budget to be interested in testing and evaluating your security, which plenty of institutions don't have the money. You might say a, a, a bank, a bank has all the money in the world, but as far as mindfulness, well, they said, we have vaults, we have time clocks, we have all these things. Like we don't need to, you know, we'll test maybe with an internal team. We don't want to have external people. Or you might have a hospital environment, medical environments. Again, they're very aware of the need for security. They're very aware that their security might be lacking. But a lot of hospitals are cash strapped because we do healthcare very wrong in this country. So the data center ISP tech sector, they are the ones who both are aware of security needs and have the money to hire teams like us. So in data centers, there have absolutely been times where I have bypassed a door been able to mask a sensor so that an alarm doesn't go off, or just sometimes you just say, all right, let's just not care. Let's just let this door register an alert and see what happens. And let's test the human element. And either an employee or a guard comes around a little while later looking to see who's in the data hall. But we're so ingrained into thinking that an intruder would be behaving in a certain way, either causing mayhem or stealing things. But if they encounter a person, who's dressed in the company polo, has a badge that looks like a legit badge, and I'm using a key to unlock a rack because all the server racks in all America's data centers are key to like, and I'm just clearly, I'm checking some lights and I lock it back up. And that person will just kind of walk, look down the hall. No, that's not it. That's another person working. And you just become invisible. So, so this is more like social engineering even than having a set of tools that you're using to open things up. That's definitely a part of it. You know, if you're doing your job right, you want to give the client and the target opportunities to find you, opportunities to challenge you. Uh, we, we make the sparring analogy a lot, like in martial arts. If, if an instructor does nothing but blast someone right and square in the nose and that person drops to the mat and they say, okay, good lesson, right? Next week, same time. Yeah, they didn't really learn anything. You want people to start hitting you back. So you want to say, if I do this, what are you going to do? Now I'm coming at you this way. Can you block it? So ideally, you want to give the client and the customer more opportunities and say, all right, I'm going to break in this building. I'm going to try this way. What, what can make it a little bit noisier, but a little more obvious that something's wrong? And you see what happens when they respond. And they have to learn, their staff has to learn, oh, you know that guy you saw and you walked right by? Did you actually validate who they were? Did you check credentials? So yeah, we try to give them a chance. We'll, we'll say, right, let's break in this time, but do it with a different tool that's not quite as covert. 
maybe they'll notice. Let me just tell you what I would do. And then you tell me if you're going to hire me or not. I think if I had to get into a facility where I wasn't supposed to be, my first attempt would involve a box of donuts and a cup of coffee that I was holding in my mouth as I walked up to the door and just sort of mumbled, hey, can you get the door for me? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we don't like to steer too hard into capitalizing on, on marginalized stereotypes, but if someone is differently able, if someone has, needs walking assistance, if someone's in a wheelchair, um, if someone is just you know older, someone looks like they just can barely get the door open at all. Uh, or if somebody's yeah. really into coffee and donuts. Yeah. yeah, you combine all those things and society is filled mostly with nice people. You know, yeah. they're mostly going to help let people in. So when you do a job, what is in your estimation like the, the most shocking response you ever got to what you're trying to do to help somebody keep people like you out of their facilities? There's different kinds of shocking. You can you want kind of a bit of an arresting deliverable to give to people if they need a wake-up call, if they need more buy-in maybe from elsewhere in their organization. You may have some people who truly do see a problem that needs to be addressed and other people don't believe it's a problem. So we're brought in to demonstrate, no, this is very real. And sight unseen, we were able to discover this weakness. Or maybe you have someone who doesn't themselves think there's any need for anything special. They say, no, we're doing fine. This is a checkbox, right? And you want to deliver results that make them go, whoa, oh, wow, that's shocking. Uh, the real the real worst one that you hope to never have is a situation where you deliver a bunch of findings, you demonstrate impact, and it doesn't move the needle. You know, you come back a year later and they say, they say, well, you know, okay, uh, maybe we'll do something about that. Maybe we won't. It's kind of like the most dangerous words in the English language when uttered by an inside guy is, don't worry, we got this. Mm-hmm. We've always done it that way. When's the last time there's been a problem? Which there's a possibility that's true. Maybe someone lives in an incredibly safe area. There's just really no likelihood that they're going to be targeted. They're an innocuous business with no political enemies and motivations and all their employees are happy and would never do anything to hurt the company. Maybe for that company, spending an extra, I don't know, two, $300 to upgrade every single badge reader because their credentials are very outdated. That maybe that could be money better spent somewhere else. I'm I'm not the client, and at some point at the end of the day, you have to put faith in the client. But there are sometimes it's a head scratcher where you say, "Man, all right, I mean, you're going to do what you guess you think is best, but talk to legal if you have a breach or a problem, an incident, and this reports in a drawer of all these things we found." So here's the deal. I use Yahoo Finance. I use it to make money because it works, not just because they're a sponsor of the show. Heck, I've been using them for years before they ever called to become a sponsor. I do a lot of investing and I need to make split second financial decisions. And that's where Yahoo Finance comes in. I trade stocks and I trade options and you can't trade them in a vacuum. You've got to know what's going on. Yahoo Finance gives you the opportunity to look at the whole picture. I mean, breaking news, editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts. I love the customizable charts. They have it all. At Yahoo Finance, I'm part of a community of over 90 million users. You heard me. 90 million folks use Yahoo Finance because they're helping you on your way to financial success. Visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com, yahoofinance.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Now, hey, Dave, I got to ask you. Now, let's say you, 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 you bobble the coffee and donuts and you get through the door. Mm-hmm. 
And that was one of the tests. I imagine there are many levels of entry mm -hmm. when it comes to some places. Mm -hmm. Let's say the place that you're um, your penetration testing is Kentucky Fried Chicken, which I believe now is called KFC. And your goal is to get the secret recipe mm -hmm. for the fried chicken. And you have to, they, and, and there's two ways to get it. You can either get into the safe where it's written down by Colonel Sanders himself, mm -hmm. or you can get it from a computer. I'm going to give you a test and you tell me if it's a reasonable mm -hmm. one. Steve, I want you to get in the building and I will agree with you that we have a problem if you can get a US a thumb drive into the computer with the recipe and prove that you did it. Mm -hmm. Is that is it original or extra crispy? I'm just going to say original cuz extra crispy okay. is not as a as, as as valuable a recipe in my opinion. <laughs> This also reminds me of a SpongeBob episode where they stole the recipe from the Krusty Krab. I don't understand why you don't just steal a Krabby Patty and all that confusion. I'll be right back. Oh, which, you know, by the way, has anyone ever wondered how good those crab cakes must be? Incredible. They must be remarkable. Let's do that. Let's just say, could you get Mr. Krabs' secret recipe? recipe. Yeah. Well, I would say the the short quip of an answer is yes. Like, of course, anything's achievable. The the key point is with what effort and time and money, right? What level of commitment on your adversary? And that's why risk modeling is very important. Yeah. Anytime you have someone who says, well, we have this very critical asset and we've surrounded it with these layers of security. Uh, are we okay? Are we good? And our answer is, well, who's trying to steal it? Is this something that like, you know, an untrained smash and grab group of like, do you, do you have a jewelry store and your main risk is like smash and grab people on the street after hours, they just try to break down the gate, get in and, and steal stuff. Or do you have dedicated attackers, attackers who are, let's go to the other super extreme, we'll say nation state level. If you have actual national secrets and your attackers have all the time in the world to just plan it out and almost unlimited budget. It's very hard to to stand up against that kind of attacker, which is why most of our state secrets are guarded both by, you know, mechanical and physical locks and also electronic monitoring. And they are designed to be, you know, we're designed to alert upon any sort of attempted intrusions. Is this part where we're supposed to ask you, are they really? <laughs> they are, in my opinion. I mean, having having gotten into a number of secured vaults and containers over the years, I could tell you. The only way I'm doing it is going to involve a lot of mess and disturbance and, and more than 30 minutes of effort. And ideally, you know, you need you need a guard to come around every 29 minutes if it takes me 30 minutes to drill into the safe. And that's going to be part of the protection. But if you have corporate espionage, if you have corporate actors, if you're worried about maybe you're worried about your own employees, maybe you're not your own employees might you might say, well, we have the best lock on the front door of the building. OK. Well, aren't your employees already in the building? Then what are you doing with, to protect the asset from the inside of the building? Uh, it's it's understanding who is your likely threat and what their capabilities and commitment is likely to be. Well, this gets into some dicey uh, waters because you then if it's let's just play this play the tape. Mm -hmm. If you have uh, an issue where your biggest it's not you know plankton trying to get Mr. Krabs recipe. This is Deviant Olaf being asked to penetrate a a piece of IP at a at a big company. Mm -hmm. And you sit there and you scratch your head and you go, you know, it's probably the easiest way to do this is to find a an employee who's mm -hmm. compromisable. Okay. Now, where do you draw the line? Because do you do you do you like engage in identity theft and figure out who has bad credit and then go after them and offer them 10 grand and boom you're in or do you like what it because you know that's how a that's mm -hmm. how a state that's how a state actor would do it they would figure out who has the financial problems and they just offer him some money how does it work oh it's absolutely like that now do we make you do we leverage individual human actors uh, on the inside seldom that's considered in the industry. It's considered a little bit uncouth. It's considered crass to do. Uh, also, you, we are we are restricted in ways that that threat actors are not. There's there's no IRB. There's no Internal Review Board. You know, for like nation state attackers. But 
there, there are ethical principles where you can't leverage a human asset. You can't make someone part of a security exercise if they're a nine to five worker and they're going home at the end of the day, just like I wouldn't break into someone's personal house to steal their company laptop. Uh, why? Well, because they're at the end of the day, they've clocked out. Their house is their house. It's their own domain. And while there may be an element of their company security that's impacted if they're leaving their laptop, let's even just say their car. They leave their laptop in their car uh, parked on the street at night. That may be a very valid attack vector that someone might engage in, but whether I would do it or whether I would document it and say, hey, you know, we walked by on the street and we found this car. And there's there's ways to approach that with the client that don't make people an unwitting participant. Uh, yeah. An unwilling participant in the That's test. a good thing, but we know it's it's you know it's tough to train people to be uncouth if they're not naturally uncouth, and we know the criminals are uncouth. Yeah. So that's the line. That's a hard. That's a hard line. It's an interesting one though, mm-hmm. because where there's a real ethics question, you will take the picture rather than take the punch. I would say yes, and I would say you can deliver some of the same impact upon the giving the news. He said, I could have done this. Or let's make it, let's take a little bit of the emotion out of it. Let's say I'm in a server environment, I'm in a server farm, and there's a secure cage over there, which is doing all of their financial processing. Those are the machines that do that. They might be interested in, you know, I, I could lay hands on that cage and I could say, look, this is a picture of me touching the, I'm, I'm at the cage. And it's the same exact lock that I got through in those first three cages that got me this far. But if I actually crack the door, or slide it open, or step step across that threshold, there's a litany of PCI compliance and the lawyers get involved, and I could be costing the client far, far more than they're actually deriving in value out of my services. And I can say, all right, can we just agree? Maybe we just agree that I could have easily gone into this cage. Okay. Do, do you do you remember the story? It was a rather well-known insurance company that will go nameless in the Midwest that had a server that contained over 900,000 names with very sensitive data that was in a facility that was guarded and they had 24-hour cameras and someone came in and actually stole the server and took it out of the facility. I believe I do remember that incident or something very similar. And yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable. I, there was a job when I was, we were told, can you steal a company laptop? That was one of the things they said, we tell people in the office, it was you know, downtown Bay Area. And they said, we're telling people they can't just leave their laptops unattended. If somebody gets into the office, it's an open environment, they could steal them. We haven't rolled out full disk encryption yet. They should use these little, they had little Kingston, uh, you know, Kensington locks. Okay, you're supposed to lock them up and that wasn't happening, of course. So one of my objectives was steal a laptop. And I I did, but I didn't do it by stealing a laptop and walking out because they had asset tags, you know. The guard said, hey, is that your laptop? We have to check them in, check them out. Um, I stole 27 Hmm. laptops. And I used a hand truck <laughs> and, you know, you just, you know, I'm wearing a workman's overalls and, oh, these are all getting uh, rehashed. Okay. And the guy held the door for me. The the guard was like, he wasn't going to check that. Oh, you guys be doing something big. So this is, this is, so it's like Edward Snowden tossing the microchip to the security guard as he goes through security on his way out with yeah, Rubik's cube. all of yeah. all the, the Rubik's cube with all the NSA secrets. Like, see you later. Hey, hey. You ever play with one of these? Yeah, when I was a kid. Yeah. Just try it. It's hard. Well, there, there was another there was another one many years ago involving Wells Fargo, where two guys who worked in the mortgage department went on vacation, downloaded 40,000 files onto their laptops because they decided they were going to do work on the road, mm-hmm. stopped at a gas station while they were gassing their car, went inside to get donuts came back and their laptops were gone. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge brouhaha for months. But it gets it it's the human element. Yeah. One of the things we talk about in this show is that people have a tendency not to change default passwords, which mm-hmm. leave them open to all kinds of horrible things. Mm-hmm. And today you've mentioned things about how elevators have different modes or access keys that are essentially default. Mm-hmm. So for the people listening, are there 
Other examples like master keys or magic keys, basically a key that can open anything and they don't realize that that's available. Oh yeah. I mean, you mentioned this at the start, I've got a, a door king access control panel sitting behind me on the wall, literally. So if I look in my uh, little shady tell coffee mug here, I'm holding a door king systems key. Uh, this is the key, right? For, for door king system cabinets. And that's an access box you'd see at a gate or in front of an apartment building. That standard intercom remote door opener that you're opening with just a $10 key. So, I mean, that there's all there's, there's all your circuitry. There's your door relays. There's, and I can, you know, I can just jump around anything I need to do. I can bypass and, you know, just trigger, trigger door opening events because I have this little $10 key. So before we give you the key to escape the what the heck prison we have you in right now you know what scares you what what when people finish with this episode what would you recommend they do immediately like do not pass go do not collect two hundred dollars do this immediately um connect with networks of other people and friends and colleagues um, we talk about humans as a weak surface in security, but frankly, humans are the best surface in the defense in the world. Uh, what scares me is nothing to do with the security industry. It's to do with the cold indifference of the universe and the systems in which we live. Um, there's, a, there's a talk I have coming out in uh, just a couple of weeks. I'll be at Saint Con in Utah. Maybe it's already happened by the time this goes to air, but the talk is called Lawyer, Passport, Locksmith, Gun. And it has to do with um, if you're desperately in need of any one of those things because there's a problem in your life, that's not when you should be looking for one of those things and trying to figure it out then when you're in a moment of crisis. Um, having a good team of people around you, having people that you already know and trust who you can turn to during an incident, that is far more valuable than any widget or tool or procedure. Yeah. Uh, there, there is no cavalry coming. We are the ones who protect us. We look out for us. We keep us safe. Having people around you that you rely on and it can give you good advice when you're in a moment of crisis or threat. So you, the, the panicky animal with your brain half distracted, are not trying to make all the critical decisions then. That's brilliant. And you know, it's true. I live in a small town where I happen to know a lot of the trades people uh, who work different things and for instance today i just called up my neighbor and was like hey you know any you know a good well guy and he goes oh i used to be a well guy i'm going to come over and look at it for mm -hmm. you the, you know at the end of the day when we're in like the walking dead mode mm -hmm. it's just your neighbors who are going to be doing all the everyday things yeah and you have a collective of people who know how to do stuff yeah different stuff and together yeah. you can make stuff happen and it's great you mentioned a well guy plumbing like you have, you have a plumbing problem at two in the afternoon on a tuesday you take out the yellow pages but murphy is going to have the law that comes into effect and your plumbing problem is going to be at 10 30 at night on a saturday and then you're in a crisis and then whoever answers the phone first even if they're the worst at the job is your guy overcharging you ripping yeah. you off they might be who comes in and helps because you didn't have a well guy. Unless you happen to have Tony Vizzo. Hey, Tony, uh, the plumber who's a friend of yours and you have his cell phone number. Yeah. And you can be like Tony and he goes, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I need to come. Here we, have, we have Bob, the, the electrician in Nashville. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that is the uh, thing, Adam, is like we have <laughs> as uh, as everyone who listens to this show knows, we have Travis. That's right. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But it is like, it is about being a communitarian. And I love that. I can't wait to hear that talk. I'm, I, is it going to be on YouTube? Or I'm pretty sure. I, I believe uh, St. Con records everything. So I'm sure it'll wind up up there. There's, uh, there's some heavy stuff in that talk, but I think it'll be good. Thank you so much. I mean, we appreciate the knowledge you shared with us, your good sense of humor and the fact that you were willing to come on and, and actually spend time with us. Of so, course. Thank really you for having me. It. Thank you for having me so very much. I'm gonna go Thanks. home and change all my locks. Yeah. Don't bother, man. <laughs> Saws all through the side of your yeah. door has got you in. <laughs> okay, so it's time for the tinfoil swan. Our paranoid takeaway that'll help keep you safe online. 
Okay, so this week's one is more about something to be aware of rather than a specific practice. By default, when you take any picture with a digital camera, it actually has something called metadata on every photo that will tell you where it was taken and when it was taken. So that's like location services, right? Isn't that what you have on your phone or digital device? Yeah, exactly. And for the most part, it can be helpful. If you take a bunch of pictures on vacation, it's kind of nice just to have like Google Photos say, you know, the time you went to Acapulco. That's great. However, it's good to be aware of the fact that there are going to be situations where you do not want to have your location information loaded into a photo. If you're taking a picture of your kid on their first day of school, for instance, you probably don't want to have your coordinates there. If you are selling something online that's of great value and you have the coordinates there, really what that's doing is leading a trail of breadcrumbs that lead straight to your house. So the, it's called a photo metadata. So this is almost like the situation where someone on social media posted a picture of their kid next to a blackboard and the blackboard had their name, their age, their favorite color, their school, their dog's name. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, the main thing to keep in mind is that even if the even if you're sharing a photo, even if you take a photo that doesn't have any um, potentially sensitive data, there's still usually going to be information attached to that photo that has sensitive data. And it's a good idea to know how and when to disable that. Now that you've made everybody paranoid, uh, how do you turn off this metadata on their on their cameras? On an iPhone, it's super easy. You just go to settings and then go down to your privacy option. And then there's a option for location services. And there will be a setting for your camera app. And then you just say never. You uh, just change the app permissions and that will remove the location metadata. Pretty similar in an Android. Uh, just by default, it has something called the Google camera app. And that'll have settings. And there's a save location option on there. And you can just turn that off. And in both cases, that just means that you are effectively removing that metadata from your photos. Well, so here's the deal. If you are going to take this advice, go to location services on your on, in your settings anyway. And make sure, like, okay, I have AccuWeather, for example definitely want to use location services for that but you can choose if you have it if you share uh, location never ask when you're using it or only when you're using the app or always and then you can also choose whether or not you share the precise location or a general location and and you should go through on every single one and uncheck precise location you might want it when you're doing ride sharing, and you might want it when you're doing maps, but you don't necessarily, in fact, you absolutely don't want it when you're taking pictures for Instagram and things like that. So be very careful and make sure you know where you're providing your precise location. So if you're listening to this podcast on a phone, just take it out really quickly and check your uh, location settings. It's really one of the best ways to protect your own privacy. Thanks so much for listening. If you like What the Hack, give it a good rating on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast and review it. It's the best way for people to find the show and spread the word. What the Hack with Adam Levin is a production of Loud Tree Media. It's produced by Andrew Stephen, the man with two first names. You can find us online at loudtreemedia.com and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adam K. Levin.